Good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. And uh, if you haven't been with us the past two weeks, I just want to give you a little bit of an update of where we are and where our teaching is going. We are teaching, we have recently begun teaching through the life of David. And in order to do that, we started in the book of 1 Samuel, laying foundations leading up to David. And today, we will actually get to David for the first time. The, yeah, all right, yeah, woo! Teaching on David, and we haven't really talked about David yet. We will today. And we've covered a lot of material the past two weeks. Um, Jay preached on 15 chapters over the course of the last two Sundays, which is a lot of material to cover, but it's foundational material, it's important material that we needed to hear in, in order to understand more of how David came into being part of God's kingdom. And so we're going to be, we're going to be looking more at that this morning. But let's, let's start off with a word of prayer. Jesus, your word is living and it is active. And we pray that this morning that your living and active word um, would find it to those places in our heart that it needs to be, the depths of who we are, into our spirit, into our soul. Uh, We don't make your word living and active. Your word is living and active because you spoke it into being that way. And so it is there, and the potential for us to receive it as living and active exists already. So, Lord, where our hearts might be hard, where there's distraction in our life, where there's walls that may be in place, Lord, we just pray that you would take those down so that your living and active word would penetrate into us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So up to this point, we've looked at two main people in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, the first being Samuel, the prophet Samuel, and the second being Saul, King Saul, who Samuel anointed to be the first king of the nation of Israel, God's people, Israel. And um, we've, we've looked at this cycle that the Israelites have gone through where they, uh, they're God's people, but they fall away from God. They worship idols, they sin, um, and then these people like Samuel, Israel's prophet, and these other folks called judges have spoken into the Israelite people saying, you have fallen away from your God. You have gotten away from his truth. You're worshiping idols. And then the cycle of the nation of Israel is such that they see that, they see their sin, they repent, and then they are drawn closer to God And then unfortunately, after a period of time, they end up going back to their same old bad patterns and they're distant from God. God puts somebody into their midst, like Samuel, to to discipline them, to say, this is where you have gone wrong. This is where you have separated yourself from God. The people, once again, see their folly. They draw near to God and the cycle goes on and on. And so that's the cycle that that repeats itself in the nation of Israel and and in our lives as well, too. Um, So, we got to this point in the nation of Israel's history where they started looking around them and saying, you know what, all these other nations that are around us, nations that they were to have defeated, but that they didn't because they were disobedient to God, all these other nations around us have a king. And so we want a king, just like them, because we don't feel powerful enough or capable enough to defeat them if we don't have a leader. And of course, God is like, I'm, I'm your leader. Like, what better leader do you want than me? But, but he wasn't good enough for them. They kept asking for a king and asking for a king. And so finally God said, you want a king? I'll give you a king. So he sends his prophet Samuel to anoint Saul. And we talked um, about Saul's reign, the beginning of Saul's reign last week as, as their king. Let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 16 at this point in time. 1 Samuel chapter 16, I'm going to read the whole thing. 
Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with oil, olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one uh, look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadad to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he does not, he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said. Find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, Send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul, along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. The word of the Lord. Before we um, delve deeper into this story, I just want to pull out two parts of this passage that could be challenging or troubling to us and deal with those things first so that when we go back and tell the story, we can kind of tell it through those things so we have a little information. So we're going to, I'm going to kind of take a little side note here and explain two interesting aspects of the passage. We'll put that on the shelf, and then as we travel through the story, we'll travel right through those things again. The first is in verses 2 and 3. Um, Samuel is going to anoint David king, but he's in a weird place because if Saul finds out, Saul's going to kill Samuel because Saul is the king. 
And all of a sudden, this prophet is anointing another guy king that does not make current kings happy, okay? Um, these kinds of things happen in, in our business world. Um, you know, the new CEO is coming in, the other CEO doesn't know about it, all of a sudden he wakes up and he doesn't have a job, right? And so, and Samuel is scared. Samuel's afraid he's going to get killed. I mean, he's human, right? I mean, he's a prophet. He is certainly a man of God, but he's afraid. He doesn't want to die by the sword. Um, and so he says to the Lord, how, how can I do this? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And then the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse's family to that sacrifice. So it, on first reading, it, it could seem here that is the Lord telling Samuel to be deceptive, to lie about what he's doing? And, uh, and I just want to unpack that a little bit. The, the key question here is how. Samuel asked God, how am I supposed to do this? Because if I don't do it the right way, I'm going to get killed. And the Lord says, and rightly so, well, you're going to make a sacrifice there. And this would have been a perfectly good time to make a sacrifice with the anointing of a new king, to, to, to seek God, to praise God for the provision that he is about to provide for his people and to sacrifice for him in this process. And so it's not necessarily deceptive, but it is something that, Saul, that Samuel can say to Saul if Saul asks, I was making a sacrifice. He was. They were there to worship their Lord in this, in what was happening. And um, keep in mind that Saul already knew that his time was ticking down. So the fact that this anointing would be happening, if Saul is paying any attention at all, which he is, he would know that, that his reign of king is coming to an end. And if you look back in chapters 13, uh, thir- verses 13 to 14 in chapter 13, um, it says this, it says, How foolish, Samuel explained, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom, Saul's kingdom, over Israel forever. But now, Saul, your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that being David. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. So even in chapter 13, Saul is already getting this information that there's this other guy that God already has in mind. And so, um, but God also wants to protect his prophet Samuel. So um, there's nothing deceptive here other than a protection of Samuel. And things are going on that Saul already knows, if he's paying attention, are going on. So that's that component of the passage. Now, go to verse 14 in chapter 16. And verse 14 says, Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Uh, This is a troubling verse. Does the Lord send evil spirits for, you know, that's a fine term we can use here, into people? Well, no, the Lord is good. He is pure. He is fully good in every aspect of his nature. What is happening here, and there's precedent for this in, in several places throughout Scripture, notably in the book of Job, where the Lord pulls his presence away. And in his presence pulling away, the enemy, there's permission for the enemy to move in. And so that's what's happening here is the Lord, it says in the passage, his spirit, he pulled his spirit away from Saul, which opened up the door. So yes, the Lord initiated that action. He didn't create an evil spirit and send it to Job. Here's a spirit from who God is. No, the Lord allowed that to happen. He pulled his protection away from Saul by the presence of his spirit, allowing the spirit of the enemy to come and and torment Saul in in some way. And we don't know exactly how that happens. But the same thing happens with, with Job, that the Lord essentially gives the enemy permission to 
to go in Job's life, and Job experiences all these heartaches, but then ultimately sees, you know, who his God is. Um, so, um, God uses the presence of that spirit, eventually, that evil spirit that comes to Saul, to tell this story, because because of that tormenting spirit that the Lord allows into Saul's life, David gets a place in Saul's court, okay? So the Lord even uses that evil to work out his plan, the evil that exists. He uses it to get David where he needs to be. So um, set those over here, come back to them as we tell the story. Now, before we tell the story of 16, we're going to tell a little bit more background to this story so we can fully understand the purpose of this chapter. Um, there's a big question looming at this point in, in the book of 1 Samuel, and that question is, why would God even make Saul king? I mean, in, he makes bad choices. He's about ready to remove him from the throne. He's very upset with Saul. Why would God even put that man on the throne? And it's a question that we have to answer. But we have to start with not being too hard on Saul. Um, don't be too hard on him. He made mistakes. It's easier for us to stand back and say, whoa, what a foolish king. He wasn't a horrible king. He was a normal dude who was out looking for his dad's donkeys when all of a sudden he meets up with this prophet and the prophet anoints him king over a nation. Now, have you ever lost your dog and you're out in your neighborhood looking for it and somebody came up to you and said, oh, you're about to become the governor of Pennsylvania? or the president of the United States. No, this is, these things don't happen. Saul is kind of yanked out of just normal, everyday, shepherd, agriculture life, and all of a sudden he's told that he is king of this nation. This is a shocking revelation for a person. Um, I need a volunteer. Jake, cool. Can you come up here? <coughs> Jake didn't know about this. Actually, I asked him if he was going to be here on Sunday, so he probably was feeling something. Okay, Jake, I got to go do something. Here's my notes. Preach. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Good job, Jake. Okay, yeah. See, I mean, see how hard that was? You couldn't even find... Okay, give Jake a round of applause. He, I mean, the notes were here. He couldn't even find it. This was hard. You're all thinking, this is funny, and also I'm really glad that that wasn't me that Matt called up there without... I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that, that happened to Saul. And so it's, don't be too hard on him. He, he's thrust into a role that was very unexpected in his life. He goes from donkey finder to king of a nation, right? And, and Saul also showed passion in his, in his, in his position as king. He, he was passionate for his people. He did some crazy things. He got mad when people attacked his people. Remember, Jay talked about he cut up an ox. He was so angry and sent the pieces throughout the kingdom. Like, that's, that's weird, but, but that's passion. That's passion for his nation. Um, sometimes he got a little overzealous. There was a time in his reign that... The Philistines, um, who were their arch enemy of Israel, the Philistines were being attacked by Israel, and Israel was winning. And then Saul makes this vow that his men should not eat until Phil the, the people of Philistia, the Philistine army, are destroyed completely. Well, his army's attacking, attacking all day, and they can't eat because if they do, something bad's going to happen. And then his son Jonathan eats, not knowing that his dad had made this foolish vow. And he almost dies. Fortunately, his men save him. Um, his son's men save him. And so he, he was zealous. But, but there was a passion in him there um, to, to say, we're going to go after this nation that we need to defeat, and, and God wants us to defeat them. And, and then he makes this foolish vow in the midst of it that could, could have turned out real bad for them. But, but it didn't. 
So he's a little overzealous, and we get overzealous. I mean, that's, you know, our passion leads to us to make decisions in the moment. So, but, but, but he's a decent king. Saul won some key military victories. He wasn't completely incompetent at what he did. At that time, a king was the, the head of an army, and they fought a lot. And, and he won some key military victories. God would say, attack this nation, and he would be obedient. And he would attack that nation, and they would win. God used Saul. God also made him king to make a point. The people wanted a king. They demanded a king. And so God saw it as a point in time that he could teach the people of Israel something that he'd been trying to teach them for a long time, that he, he was their king, that he was their ruler. And so he gives them a king. And in Acts um, chapter 13, it says this in reflecting back on Saul's reign. It says, Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. That's not too bad of a reign. You know, 40 years, that's pretty good stuff, so not horrible. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So it seems like the time had not come for Israel to have a king, but they pushed and pushed and pushed, and God said, I'll give you a king. You want to see what it's like? I will teach you what it's like. You will be suppressed. Your sons and will die. You will have to tithe to your king. These are the things that they were told before Saul became king, and they still wanted a king. So the God gave them Saul, and he did an okay job. He did an okay job. Um, and it's interesting to note, in the Is- Israelites' push to have a king, it was their understanding of t- God's timing and his provision or his, his means to give them the things that they needed the things that he would provide for them, his timing and his provision, they believed God to be off. They believed that they needed a king now, and they believed that God should provide them with a king now because they needed a king to be in relationship, in a military relationship with the other nations around them. And so they believed God's timing and his provision to be off, that they knew better, and God was to show them that his timing and provision were not off. If they had waited, they would have had a great king in David, and they would have done well. But they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait. I think that um, this is not in Scripture. This is completely, you know, on me. So if you disagree, that's fine. I I think that God would have worked with Saul um, for a longer period of time than what he did, because Saul was was decent. Um. And he would have gone down in history as a pretty good king. I mean, now we think of Saul as just this bumbling moron who made some really poor decisions and, you know, blew up the nation of Israel. But I think had he not made two really bad decisions, he would have gone down with a different history behind his name. Um, and both of those decisions connected to outright disobedience towards God. Basically, disobedience towards God's timing and God's provision. Ultimately, he just didn't trust God. Now, there are two decisions that Saul made, both of which we've touched on over the past two weeks. The first one was that Samuel, through God, instructed Saul to meet Samuel in seven days in Gilgal, and there they would sacrifice to the Lord. And so Saul was given specific instructions by Samuel, the prophet, through the Lord, to meet Samuel to give a sacrifice to the Lord at a very specific time. Saul goes to that place at the time. Samuel's not there. The Philistine army is closing in. 
They're afraid they're going to get crushed by the Philistine army. Saul's freaking out. He needs to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel's not here. We need to sacrifice before we go into battle or we're going to lose. And so what does he do? He sacrifices before Samuel gets there. Disobedience to God's timing. Samuel's really upset with him. And it's that point that the Lord speaks to Saul and says, your time is up. I've appointed somebody else to take your throne, and I know who that man is. Um, Outright disobedience. But Saul still remains king. His time had not ended at that point. The second thing, which Jay talked about last week, was that Saul was to destroy the Amalekites. And if you look at uh, verses 15, chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. This is brutal. The instruction from the Lord is this nation has to end. This nation is an evil nation. And then he says in verse 7 that Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So you can see Saul's disobedience. Destroy everything. Keep nothing. What does he do? Not only does he keep things, he keeps the best things. I'll take the best, and we'll, kill the thing, we'll get rid of the things we don't need. Um, completely selfish. So again, here you see that Saul is questioning God's provision. The command was very clear. But the fear is, is that God will not provide for me, my army, and my nation. And so I need, God's wrong. I, I can't get rid of all this stuff. There's good quality things here that we need because God's not going to come through for us when it matters. And if we get rid of this stuff now, down the road, we're going to wish we had it because God's not going to give it to us when we get to that spot down the road. And that's how Saul acted. Um, I want to take a closer look through history of Scripture. Why God was so against this nation of Amalek and the Amalekite people who lived there. Why was it that they needed to be completely destroyed? Um, in 1 Samuel 15, 2, um, he said, the Lord says, I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. So God wants to settle his account, meaning... I owe you some money, or you owe me some money. Let's work out this financial deal here. Same thing. God is saying, there's something that is owed here for what has been done. We need to even up. We need to get things where they need to be in the right spot. God is about ready to settle his account. And then he tells Saul, destroy the nation completely. Um, So what happened when they were in Exodus, that God is so wanting to destroy this nation and get them where they should be out of any interference in his plan for this world that he has created. If you go to Exodus 17, I'm going to read it. You can go there if you'd like. Exodus 17, verse 8, says this. When the people of Israel were still on Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. 
But whenever he dropped his hand, the, Amal- the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired and he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses. This is the key part in this verse. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Write this down so as, as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek. Okay, so this is God's desire at this point. They attacked his people on their journey out of Egypt to the promised land. Okay, so from the very beginning, this nation has been one against God, and God will permanently remove them. That is his plan. Um, now, in Numbers, we see that uh, the nation of Israel is ready to go into the promised land, um, but there's a lot of fear. Some people don't want to go in because they're afraid they're going to get beat by these other nations that are already there, um, one of them being the people of Amalek, the Amalekites. And so the people rebel, saying, hey, we don't want to go. And then they get punished. You guys are not faithful to the Lord. He will deliver you. He will give you that. And they say, okay, okay, we're sorry. We'll go, we'll go. And they say, no, the Lord has pulled his spirit from you. Don't go now because you will lose. What do they do? They go and the Amalekites defeat them, okay? Then, further on in Numbers 24, there's this crazy prophetic guy named Balaam. And he's called on by one of Israel's enemies to curse Israel. Well, God gets a hold of this crazy prophet guy and he says, don't curse Israel, bless Israel. Curse their enemies. And so, in Numbers 24, 20, Balaam says, it says, then Balaam looked over toward the people of Amalek and delivered this message. Amalek was the greatest of nations, but its destiny is destruction. Okay, again, this theme coming through, like, this nation's destiny is to be destroyed. Its destiny is destruction. God uses this prophet to speak those words. Um, in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 15, now Deuteronomy means second law. So it's this uh, reminder to the people of Israel about who they are, what they're supposed to be doing, and who their God is. And it says this, it says, never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land he is giving you as a special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Do you hear that theme that came, is coming out again? Their memory must be erased. And then it says, never forget this. This theme is very strong. The Israelites would have heard this theme coming through. This is our major enemy. They must be destroyed at God's appointed time. They must be destroyed. You can see why God would be so upset when Saul has the opportunity and doesn't take it. Um, In Judges chapter 2, they're defeated again by the nation of Amalek. In Judges 6, the Amalekites come in and destroy the Israelites' crops. Um, In Judges 7, Gideon, uh, you know, he takes this small army and defeats this huge army from Midian. But there's Amalekites in that part of that Midian army too. And Gideon destroys them, but not completely. Um, And then if you move to 1 Samuel now, we see that Saul actually has some success against the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 14, 48. 
He performed great deeds and conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. But they hadn't been completely conquered. And in chapter 15, God says, I'm going to settle accounts. Destroy this nation. Saul doesn't. He keeps the best for himself, keeps the king alive. And then later on, past, and we'll get to this in the weeks ahead, is that in 1 Samuel chapter 30, there are the Amalekites again, and they kidnapped David's army, the wives and the children of the men in David's army. There they are. You know, they're still there. They're still wreaking havoc on this nation. And actually, we don't see until 1 Chronicles chapter 4 that this nation is finally destroyed. But Saul had the chance. God would have delivered them. But Saul just didn't think the timing of God or his provision were perfect. And Saul thought that he knew better. So just like the Israelites thought that they knew better, just like they thought that they needed a king, their king acted in that vein, in that spirit. I know what's best for my people. God doesn't know what's best. There's this concept um, called the upside-down kingdom, which you may have heard people talk about. And it's this notion that God's kingdom um, operates by basically a different set of rules than the world in which we live in. And so um, we might think that the best thing to do is to turn left, but actually right is the best way to turn that's a medical, metaphorical picture. I'm not saying that when you get to a stop sign and you think you're supposed to turn left, that God actually wants you to turn right. No, follow your directions. That, that's fine. Um, but, but it's this idea that like, what? That path couldn't possibly be the right. How could that lead to anything good? And we've all experienced when it does. And we go, oh my goodness. God showed up. I never thought this horrible, broken situation would yield this beautiful picture. But in looking back on it, I can see how God worked. I can see how he was in the details. I can see that he was working for me because he loves me. He was working for my church because he loves us. He was working for his people because he created them. But we get so stuck in the rules of the world and how things operate. I couldn't possibly give this money away because I need that to pay the bill. But I really feel God asking me to give the money away. But God's got to be wrong. Okay, I'm going to give the money over here. And these are hard places to be. And so the upside-down kingdom would be that, that way in which the kingdom operates, the way in which God's kingdom confronts our world that is an affront to the ways of the world. It, it turns everything on its head. In fact, there's a guy in Lancaster um, at E-Town College who wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom, and, uh, and he explores these, these concepts. And we see it in the New Testament as well, but, but we see it here. We see it in the Old Testament. We see God working this way. Um, that, that, that God's timing is right, even when Saul thinks it's wrong, right? God's timing for that sacrifice with Samuel was right. If he just could have waited a few more minutes, things could have been different for Saul if he just would have believed who his father was and what his father said to him. The provision that God would have provided, even though he didn't want them to have anything from destroying the Amalekites, God was still going to provide. And if Saul just would have waited, he would have seen God's provision and he would have been blown away and it would have been better than taking the stuff from the Amalekite army. It would have been better. But he didn't. So here's the upside-down stuff that's happening in this passage, these passages. God did anoint a worthy king in Saul. Saul was worthy to be in that position. Saul didn't think he was. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 17. Chapter 15, verse 17 in 1 Samuel. 
Samuel told him, although you, Saul, may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. Saul doesn't think that he's a worthy king. I'm just a donkey finder. I mean, he's more than a donkey. He was more than a donkey finder. But I'm not worthy. How can I be expected to do this stuff? I don't, I don't have what it takes. Yes, you do. Because the Lord anointed you. He chose you. You were good enough, but you chose disobedience. You didn't think that God made the right choice, but he did. Who cares if you're from this little tribe? God chose you. Not to ruin you, but to be his king. Um, God would have defeated the Philistines even though Samuel hadn't showed up yet to offer the sacrifice with Saul. God always showed up to defeat Israel's enemies when he said that he was going to be there. His timing was always perfect. If Saul just could have waited and had patience, he would have seen God's perfect timing. Yes, the Philistine army was coming in. They were breathing down their neck. They were many in number. Many in number. And you and I would have been scared to death too. And instead of waiting for Samuel, instead of waiting for God's prophet to show up to offer that sacrifice so that they could go into battle as a worshipful act towards their loving God, expecting him to come through for them, the sacrifice was offered by Saul out of fear that if he didn't take this step, they were going to lose. He wasn't worshiping his God. He was doing something to protect himself and his people. But God wanted their worship. He wanted their worship and adoration. God would have showed up. Um, God would have provided what the Israelites needed without them plundering from the Amalekites. He would have. He always did. But Saul missed out on seeing the kingdom work in place. He missed out on seeing the upside-down kingdom. He missed out on saying, God did provide. That is crazy. Yeah, we suffered through that. Maybe we didn't have some things for a period of time. But God showed up when we needed him to. And he showed up at the right time. In chapter 16, getting now to the heart of our passage, David was the youngest son He wasn't supposed to be the one anointed king. When Samuel went to Jesse's family and said, bring out your sons, Jesse didn't even bring out out David. He left him in the field to watch the animals because David was the runt of the family. He was the youngest one. He had to do all the dirty work. Here's my beautiful sons. Here they are. One of them will become king of Israel. Which one? I can't wait to see. This is so exciting. None of them. Because the kingdom is upside down. Even Samuel when he saw the oldest son, thought, oh, this surely must be the next king of Israel. Samuel, God's prophet, God's chosen one, even thought that the older son was going to become the king, but he wasn't. Like, so, so even Samuel steps outside of this upside-down kingdom and doesn't get it. But then he catches on pretty quick, and he goes through the line of all the sons. No, 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 no. And Jesse says, well, I've got this one other son. He's out in the field. I mean, it couldn't possibly be him. Well, it is him because that's how God works. God works against the grain of what is supposed to be in the world's eyes. So David comes in, and he gets anointed. He gets anointed to become the next king of this, this great nation, of God's people. He's a shepherd 
And he's described in the passage, I mean, obviously he's the youngest one. He's the least likely to become king. And earlier on, Saul is described in the opposite way. When he becomes king, he was the tallest. He was the most handsome. He was the most handsome one in all of Israel, the passage says. David's good looking, it says, but he wasn't the most handsome. Saul was the most handsome. Saul was the tall. Saul had the broadest shoulders. Saul was a military man. That was not David. But the kingdom is upside down. It's not what we expect it to be. So God does not only provide a way for David to be anointed by Saul that protects by Samuel, I'm sorry. God provides a way for David to be anointed by the prophet Samuel, but he protects Samuel in that. Samuel took a risk. That's why he asked God, how am I supposed to do this anointing? But God shows up and he protects Samuel in that. If many of us were called on to do something like that, um, naming somebody something when there's already somebody named that over here, that's going to create conflict. It's going to create a problem for us. Do we want to be in that? We might find ways out of that. I would. I don't like that tension. I don't like to be the one in the middle of conflict. But Samuel knew God's upside-down kingdom at that point, and he stepped into it, and he anointed David. Um, not only that, but God also puts David in Saul's court. How insane is this? We read this and go, oh, oh, what a nice story. Oh, he ends up playing the harp. No, no, this is crazy. This is crazy. David has no business being in Saul's court. He was just anointed king by Samuel over here. He's the next king. He's taking that guy's place. And God finds a way to get David into the presence of Saul, probably to understand Saul, to love Saul, to care for Saul, but to understand his temperament because down the road he would need that understanding. And so... Saul gets this tormenting spirit, which the Lord allows to come on him. And then his servants say, well, you need a harp player to calm you. Oh, you know what? I heard somewhere down at the market or wherever on Facebook. (coughs) Thanks, Jake. Excuse me. There's this guy, Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem eight miles away, which eight miles was a lot of distance in that time. Oh, yeah, he plays the harp. Let's get Jesse's son, David. Oh, yeah. They didn't know that he had just been anointed king, but that's how God works. And then Jesse allows his son to go and play harp for the king. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you have a child who's gifted in something and the president of the United States needs that gift in his office and you send your child away to be with the president of the United States to live out their gift for the benefit of the nation. So Jesse lets his son go and play the harp for Saul, and Saul loves David, the passage says. And David must have been scared to death. He must have been scared to death because he knew, he knew he had been anointed. And there he is in the court of the person who he is going to take their seat from. But he did it. He trusted that this was God's plan. He got the kingdom being upside down. He trusted that this is just where God wanted him to be. Even though Saul was a pretty scary guy at that time, he'd get pretty angry. But David trusted this is just where I'm supposed to be because he knew his God worked this way. He knew he worked things upside down than what would normally be expected. Um, next week, uh, we'll hear the story of David and Goliath. And we tend to think of it as this great kid story. But, but 
as, as you hear the story taught, think about how David got onto the battlefield, how he could even kill Goliath, and how insane that is. But that's how God works. Like, that's the kind of things that he does. The spiritual orphan, we've been talking a lot about orphans and sons, and Jay talked about it last week too, as Saul being an orphan. The spiritual orphan does not see God working in this way. Even though it is, God how, it is how God works, and we see it all throughout Scripture, the spiritual orphan, like Saul, claims that God doesn't show up on time, and he doesn't give us what we need. His timing and provision are off. And when, and, and when, it, and when it's on, when God's timing and provision matches with ours, we go, oh, it's a miracle. No, it's just how God works. It's just how God works. So the spiritual orphan claims that God is incapable of these things, that God doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know my brokenness. He doesn't know I need that answer now. He doesn't know I need that money now. He doesn't know I need that thing now. That specific thing at this specific time, God doesn't get it. That's how spiritual orphans view their father. Um, they want to see the kingdom as matching with their ideas of what it should look like and how it should work. Um, you and I do this. We do this. Samuel did it. It's okay to admit that we do this. Samuel did it. I want to be like Samuel. But even Samuel didn't believe that the youngest would become the king. We demand of God a paradigm for how certain circumstances in our life should proceed. When they don't proceed that way, we get ticked off. We often refuse to see that his kingdom operates from his standard and not ours. And his standard is a crazy standard, which we don't seem to get. His way is better. God's way is better. His paradigm works. We've all tasted it. We've all seen it. And when we have, we see the beauty in it. Um, I wanted to give an illustration of this. I didn't know. I had two illustrations. And one was about my life. And one was about this life of this other person who's in the media. And I was going to give you, I thought this would be a great opportunity to give like a choose your own ending sermon. And I was going to have you vote, but I figured you vote for not to hear about me. And so I'm going to use the other illustration about popular culture. Um, And it was just an example of, and we all have those examples to share from our life, of God just doing things in a certain way against what we thought would be the way that it would happen and put us in, certain people's presence at certain times that were, are unexpected. And then the end result is this awesome picture of God working in our life. I mean, he knows the number of hairs on our head, so certainly he can work out those kinds of circumstances as well. So we all have those things. So think about as, as the sermon comes to an end and as you go about your week, you know, what are those things that God has done where you go, oh, that is just amazing what God did. That is amazing, that, that sequence of events that he, he orchestrated to happen. So can we put this, this next slide up? Okay, how many people have heard this word over the past two weeks? Okay, some of you. Linsanity. If you didn't, sorry, you're not going to get the illustration. No, I'm, I'm explaining it to you. Linsanity. So there's a guy, and for those of you that don't follow sports, I apologize for the sports picture, but you'll, you'll understand his life and that you'll be able to connect to his life, not necessarily the details. He's a professional basketball player in the NBA. He plays for the New York Knicks. His name is Jeremy Lin. He's a, a Taiwanese, um, American-born Taiwanese man, and uh, he's played professional basketball for two years, kind of. He, uh, he went to Harvard, and so he's really smart, and not a lot of professional basketball players went to Harvard. 
but, but he did. Harvard's a great school, but typically you don't go there if you're hoping to make it to the NBA. Well, he went to Harvard, and um, actually, before he left high school, they kind of thought he'd go to like a Division three school, which is like a couple notches down from Harvard. Small school like Lebanon Valley College and play basketball there. So he ends up at Harvard, which was above what people thought his abilities were. Graduates, um, and <laughs> this is funny, he's, he wants to play in the NBA, as any college basketball player would, but, but he doesn't know if he has the ability to or not. And so he's deciding become becoming an urban pastor, which I think is a pretty good choice. Thank you. Or a professional basketball player. I mean, I could have chosen professional basketball too, but I chose the other road of being a church, a pastor at a church in the inner city. So, whole come around. So, so, so Jeremy Lin eventually gets on to a couple NBA teams for like a short period of time. This is over the past year, year and a half. But he never plays, hardly at all. Nobody really sees his ability. Well, anyway, he ends up on the New York Knicks after a series of events and timing. He's living in New York. He's sleeping on his brother's couch, who's a dental student and apparently doing better than his brother, who plays on the New York Knicks, sleeping on his brother's couch in Manhattan. And um, he's not playing for the Knicks, but he puts on the uniform every night. But they, they have these players that get injured. So they're like, he gets this opportunity to play. And he just goes crazy. He, he just scores all these points. The Knicks are having this horrible season, which is pretty much like the Knicks, even though they spend tons of money on players. And here's this guy who's making like the bare minimum, barely has a contract. They're about ready to terminate him. And okay, you can play because there's nobody else to play. Everybody's hurt and everybody else stinks now anyway. And he just, and he leads them to seven victories in a row. He's the high scorer every game. And it's becoming this, they call it Linsanity. So if you, if you go in and you type in Linsanity on Google, it, you'll see all these hits about this guy. And it's, it's part of it is because he's one of the, or the first um, Taiwanese-born, or, or um, American-born Taiwanese player in the league. So part of it has to do with he, he looks different than the rest of the players. Um, part of it is, is his story of this guy who came out of nowhere to help his team win a ton of games. Um, and uh, part of it is, is that everybody loves a good story, right? Everybody loves a good story, and he's, he's just doing amazing things. He's selling, he's now the top jersey seller in the NBA. More people want Jeremy Lin jerseys. Nobody knew who this guy was two weeks ago. Now everybody wants a Jeremy Lin jersey because of this guy came out of nowhere. Everybody loves the underdog, right? Everybody loves the underdog. So this is a great story, and if you follow Tim Tebow and the Denver Broncos, and a lot of Christians do because he's a believer, th- everybody's saying this, this story is like above Tim Tebow, right? And Jeremy Lin is, is a believer, but he goes about his faith in, in some different ways than Tim Tebow does. But I was watching an interview the other day, and uh, this is what Jeremy Lin said. This is a direct quote from Jeremy Lin. And he says, I would say it's a miracle because any time that something like this happens, a lot of stuff has to be put in place, and a lot of it is out of my control. If you look back at my story, it doesn't matter where you look, but God's fingerprints are all over the place where there were a lot of things that had to happen that I couldn't control, and you can try to call it coincidence, but at the end of the day, there are 20 or 30 things when you combine them that all had to happen and at the right time for me to be here. Did you hear that? There are a lot of things that had to happen, provision, a lot of things at just the right time for this to happen for me to be here today telling my story about how I stormed the NBA and surprised everybody. And he says, that's why I call it a miracle. He says, God's fingerprints are all over the place. 
And, and I hesitate to use kind of pop culture examples, but when I heard him say it, I thought, you know, that's, that's true. Like, his story is just what God wanted it to be. It's not what he thought it would be. It's not what Jeremy Lin thought it would be. But in looking back, he says, I see that the hard times and the people didn't believe in me or in my ability and sleeping on my brother's couch, even though I'm a professional basketball player, and never thinking I would get my chance. But as I look back on it, God was there at every step. What he gave me at each step was exactly what I needed, and it was at just the right time. God loves us. He loves Jeremy Lin. He loves me. He loves you. And he loves us enough to orchestrate the same kinds of things in our life, and he is. And as spiritual sons of our Father, God, we can see those things, and we can live in that upside-down kingdom. As spiritual orphans, we say the timing is all, is all off. I should have been at this place three weeks ago, not now. Or I shouldn't be here now. This should never happen now. Or I shouldn't have to deal with this. I should have to deal with this. But spiritual sons say, no, this is, this is part of something that God is doing. And I want to have eyes to see what's going on. This pain that I'm experiencing, yeah, it, it, it's probably not from God. But God certainly wants to use it. He certainly wants to use it as that step. He certainly wants to use it as provision in our lives. We're not all NBA basketball players. In fact, none of us are, unless there is somebody here. But we're not all professional basketball players, and so we might be able to detach ourselves and say, well, that's not my story. It's not your story, but it is your story. Because you have a story that God is working in as his son. Saul was being used in a miraculous way, out of nowhere, king of Israel. But he was an orphan. God doesn't love me. God doesn't provide for me. God doesn't do what he's supposed to do at the right time, by my definitions. And the Spirit of the Lord pulls back from Saul. And, and, and we can be in danger of those kinds of things in our life. We can be in danger of that very same thing. But we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And he works in our life just like he was working in Saul's life, just like he's working in David's life, just like he's working in Jeremy Lin's life. He's working in Matt Hershey's life, and Jake's life, and Karen's life, and Justin's life. He's working in our life in that same way. But we have to be able to view his kingdom as being upside down. We have to be able to receive his timing. We have to be able to receive his provision. We have a choice in this. We have a choice to be an orphan. We have a choice to be a son. And our choice determines our sight. It determines our receiving of these gifts that God gives to us our understanding of his kingdom. Jesus is the fulfillment of this upside-down kingdom. Like, it doesn't just end with Jeremy Lin or with David or with Saul or with me or you. Like, Jesus fully fulfilled this upside-down kingdom concept. He was born a king in a barn. He did not have a king's birth. He rode into Jerusalem as a donkey, not as donkey, on a donkey, (laughs) He rode into Jerusalem as king on a donkey, not on a majestic steed, so that he could die on a cross, not with a crown of a king, but a crown of thorns. He taught all kinds of things, like the first are last, 
and the last are first. He taught things like death births life and big things come from small things. He said things like broken things are, are, are beautiful and we're supposed to love things that are unlovely. Um, all of these kinds of things are, are what Jesus was and, and what he lived. Like Jesus is the fulfillment of this upside-down concept of, of, of the youngest becoming the king, the least expected. Jesus became king. He got his father's kingdom. He lived in it. Um, open up your bulletins. I just wanted to read an excerpt from the back. Thanks to Terry for fitting it on the bulletin. It was a tough... It was a tough job, but she managed it. If you can't read it, you can just listen if the print is too small. Um, This is an excerpt from a book called The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. You might have heard me share this a couple years ago when I taught on the parable of the mustard seed. This is the kind of thing, that that the fulfillment of this upside-down kingdom that Saul lived in, lived poorly in, and we saw David live in. David still had his issues, but David understood how to live in this kind of kingdom. And Jesus was the fulfillment of, of this kind of kingdom. And you and I have a choice how we're going to live in that kingdom. Jews valued order and had very strict rules about how to keep a tidy garden. And one of the secrets was to keep out mustard. It was notorious for invading the well-trimmed veggies and other plants and for quickly taking over the entire garden, kind of like yeast works its way through the dough. Mm. Then they'd be left with only mustard. Jewish law even forbade planting mustard in the garden. When those first century uh, peasants heard Jesus' images, they would have giggled, or maybe they would have told him to hush before he got killed. Here he is using the infamous plant to describe God's kingdom subtly taking over the world. Plenty of people had lofty expectations of the kingdom coming in spectacular triumph and were familiar with the well-known cedars of Lebanon imagery from the prophets who described the kingdom as the greatest of all trees, not unlike a giant redwood tree. The cedars of Lebanon imagery would have brought some enthusiastic amens from the crowd, maybe even gotten some people dancing. But Jesus ridiculed this triumphal expectation. After all, even mature mustard plants stand only a few feet high, modest little bushes. The Jesus revolution is not a frontal attack on the empires of this world. It is a subtle contagion spreading one little fire, one little life, one little hospitality house at a time. Isn't it interesting that Saul of Tarsus went door-to-door trying to tear up the contagion like it was a cancer? But the harder people tried to eradicate it, the faster it spread. And in the end, even Paul caught the contagion. The mustard weed grabbed him. Another convert I have fallen in love with is a dude, (laughs) he's very professional in his writing, is a dude named Minicius Felix. Felix, a persecutor of the early Christians, cursed the early followers of the way as a profane a profane conspiracy, and an impious confederacy that was multiplying all over the world just like a rank growth of weeds. He went on to say that it should at all costs be exterminated and ripped up from the roots. Years later, Minicius caught the infectious fires of God's love and joined the little mustard seed conspiracy. Mustard has always been known for its fiery pungency. In the days of the Roman Empire, it was a sign of power. Darius, the king of the Persians, invaded Europe and was met by Alexander the Great. Darius sent Alexander a bag of sesame seeds as a taunt, indicating the multitude of soldiers he had. Excuse me. (coughs) 
Alexander sent back a bag of mustard seed with the message, you may be many, but we are powerful. We can handle you, and they did. So there goes Jesus, turning power on its head again. His power was not in crushing, but in being crushed, triumphing over the empire's sword with his cross. Mustard must be crushed, ground broken, in order for its power to be released. In John's gospel, Jesus compares his death and resurrection to a seed that is broken. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is the crazy mystery that we celebrate. A Christ whose body is torn apart and whose blood is spilled like the grains and grapes of the Eucharist that give us life. Mustard was also known for healing. It was rubbed on the chest to help with breathing, sort of like Vic's vapor rub. Mustard, the official sponsor of the Jesus Revolution, a healing balm, a sign of upside-down power, and a good dip for a kosher meal. So, so here it is. Like, this is a great picture of Jesus' kingdom. He turned power upside down on its head. His power was riding on a donkey and dying on a cross, completely against what the people were expecting. But that is the kingdom that we live in. God's provision and his timing are perfect, more perfect than we know. And it takes faith to live in this kingdom. So as I close, I'm going to pray for faith for us to live in this kingdom that is against everything that the world would speak. Let's pray. And uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that there is this, this world that is all around us, um, usually unseen, that is called your kingdom, where you are the king, um, where the timing and the provision are different than what the timing and provision of the world are. God, as Christians, we're called to live as citizens of your kingdom. We're still called to live as citizens of this world, but the marks of our citizenship in this world should be those that you give to us, Jesus. The marks of our citizenship should be those of your kingdom. And so as we live in these two kingdoms, God, we, we desire to live as followers of you. And as we do that in this world, we're going to look weird. We're going to look different. And it's hard. And you know it's hard. It was hard for Saul. It was hard for David. It was hard for Samuel. It's hard for us. It was hard for you because you had to go to the cross. And that's where you were supposed to be. But Lord, I... I don't know how many of us really want to go to the cross. But Lord, that's where you tell us to go because your kingdom is upside down. And so Lord, give us the faith that it requires to trust you, to trust your timing, to trust your provision, to trust that you not even, not only know the number of hairs on our head, but you know exactly what it is that we're supposed to do and when we're supposed to do it. And when we listen to you, when we hear you, when we see you, we know And then we celebrate afterwards the beauty of what you've done, not the beauty of what we've done. So God, give us eyes to see how it is that we should follow you. Give us ears to hear how it is that we should follow you in this upside-down kingdom, Jesus. Give us ears to hear how David lived in this upside-down kingdom as we continue this teaching in the book of 1 Samuel. And God, help that word speak deep to us as individuals and as a body, as your bride. God, we trust that you will give us ears to hear, that you will give us eyes to see, and that our faith will grow. We pray this in your name. Amen.